Happy Wednesday, everyone. I hope you're having a good week so far. I'm excited to be back with you on this Wednesday evening as we jump back into the Gospel of Matthew. Today we'll be looking at chapter 11. Chapter 11, I set just a little bit of the tone for chapters 11 and 12 last week in something that I said about how people will be confused somewhat about who Jesus is and why Jesus does some of the things that he does, whether that's the religious leaders right on down to Jesus' own family. But before we jump into God's Word this evening, would you bow with me for a moment of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious treasure that is your Holy Word. Even though these documents may be some 2,000 years old, we thank you for their treasures and for the wonderful wisdom that they are able to offer our Christian living even today. Lord, be with my sisters and brothers as they follow along at home or wherever they may be. May your Spirit move among us and touch us in a special way so that we may be drawn closer to you and deeper in our faith. In Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 11 is going to begin what we would say is a, another transitional period in Jesus' ministry. When we look back at chapter 10, that was very much a teaching chapter. It was related to the disciples, the 12 right then and there, but obviously preparing the disciples for what would happen following the resurrection, after Jesus gave the Great Commission at the close of Matthew 28, and certainly as the young church began to unfold in the book of Acts and in the years that followed the book of Acts, right on up through today. When we looked at chapter 10, we noticed that there are many challenges. There will be points of opposition along the way because of our declaration of faith. There will be people who are open and receptive to the good news of Jesus Christ, but then there will be some who are adamantly opposed to the message that we proclaim. Chapters 11 and 12 kind of break up the teaching. When we get to chapter 13, we're going to have a series of parables uh, related to the kingdom of God and specifically to Jesus' ministry as it was unfolding here on earth. But before then, we have to look at some of the interactions and the responses between Jesus and John the Baptist, Jesus and the Pharisees, and then Jesus' own family by the time we get to the close of Matthew chapter 12. So would you join with me as we jump in at Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. Now when John in prison heard what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for someone else, or wait for another? Jesus answered them, referring to that delegation sent by John the Baptist, Go and tell John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them, and blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. Now this seems like a little bit of an unusual set of circumstances. After all, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, the one who inaugurated, if you will, Jesus' ministry, the one who was sent to prepare the way, 
the one who, in a fulfillment of all righteousness, baptized Jesus early in our study of Matthew. It seems kind of puzzling that John the Baptist, of all people, would have a question about Jesus' identity. You know, this text reminds me of the many times in life, maybe you've experienced in your faith journey, I know I can look back at times early on in my life when I was told you don't doubt anything, you don't question anything related to the Bible or to your relationship with God because that's just not a good example of faith. We're to be stronger than that, but I think it's interesting that John the Baptist, the forerunner, to Jesus' ministry was at a point in time, a point in life where he was wondering, is this really the Messiah? Is this truly the one who has been promised by the prophets for generations? Is this the one who is coming to make all things better? Is this the very Son of God? Or should we wait until a little bit later? Maybe, maybe Jesus was kind of the precursor, the forerunner, if you will, and that one would come after Jesus. We don't know what spawned this question, these concerns that John the Baptist had in that moment. One thing that we know is it's going to be chapter 14 before we find out the specifics about John the Baptist and his imprisonment. Could it have been the fact that John had been ministering faithfully in the wilderness? He had been baptizing people. He had been pointing people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, only now to find himself imprisoned for speaking out against the king and his family situation. Could it have been that John had been on the scene for a period of time, John doing the work of baptizing and getting people ready, and then when Jesus came into the picture, that Jesus' ministry just didn't really fit the mold that John the Baptist or some of the early Jews were expecting of the Messiah? When you look at John's ministry, when you go back to the early portion of Matthew's gospel, you find that John is kind of that hellfire and brimstone preacher that we've heard of over the years. That person who really told it how it was, told people to get their lives in order, change, repent, because Christ is coming. But then when Jesus began his public ministry, his ministry was one of healing. It was one of teaching. It was one of compassion, looking out on the people of God and expressing concern for not only their physical but also their spiritual well-being. Was John the Baptist maybe puzzled a little bit by Jesus' lack of aggression? Jesus, over in chapter 10, did mention briefly a word of warning about those who do not receive him that there are those who will face eternal judgment because they do not acknowledge the coming of the Christ. But for the most part at this stage in Matthew's gospel, Jesus' ministry has been very mild-mannered. It's been good. It's been positive. It's been very effective. We've seen lives touched in these first ten chapters. But maybe John the Baptist had some tension there. 
if Jesus really were the one coming and he was to fall in line behind John the Baptist, then maybe he should be a little bit more aggressive, we might say, in his approach to ministry. We don't know why. We don't know what spawned the question, but I do believe that it gives us permission to ask questions. How many times do we look at Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, the story of Job, when you look at the works of the Psalms, and all throughout those 150 Psalms, there are times and places where the psalmist cries out because life isn't fair. Things aren't going the way he expected. Things don't make any sense. And he wonders, even as Jesus did on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was a direct quote by Jesus from Psalm 22, verse 1. The Scriptures, if anything, give us permission to wrestle with our faith, to pose questions, to have our doubts and our fears, and to know that our questions do not exempt us from a relationship with God. Our questions do not disqualify us from faithful service in the kingdom of God. If anything, our questions enable us to grow deeper in our faith, to discover more about the riches of God's love, mercy, and goodness. I'll give you a personal example, very similar to what John the Baptist was wrestling with in that moment. Are you the one? A few years ago, my granddaddy was diagnosed with stomach cancer. And obviously, when you're close to grandparents like I was at that time, and even far beyond that, but... To get that news was a total shock to our family. And I remember as things began to advance ever quickly, when my granddaddy was there in the hospice center over in Greenville, I looked at him one day during one of those final visits I had with him, and I said, Gangan, that's what I know my, my granddaddy Paramore as, Gangan. I said, Gangan, is this real? And by that, I wasn't asking, was it true that he was battling cancer and the end was drawing near? I was wrestling from a ministerial standpoint. As a pastor, as a family member, as your grandson, a person who stands in the pulpit week after week and preaches and teaches and officiates funerals for others, is this really what it's about? Is this real? Is this life really, truly worth it? Because when you think about it, when things are going really good in life, the role that faith plays usually ends up in the back seat. Faith, when it's tested, it begins to push us forward. It begins to allow us to wrestle with questions about life, and not just the fragile nature of this life, but even the life beyond what is. We read in Scripture glimpses of what is beyond this, but in that moment, I go back to that story about five years ago. Gengen, is this real? Is this what I'm committing my life to as a preacher of the gospel of Christ and talking about all this eternal life, to get it from his perspective just days before he passed away. That was a crossroads for me. That was important for me at that stage in my ministry and it has affected my ability to do pastoral care with families since then. 
Because to be honest, when the rubber really meets the road, when times are challenging, sometimes those questions of faith really come up. Have I committed my life to this for so long, and now I know that I'm just breaths away from breathing my final and being in God's eternal glory? Is this real? Was it really worth the effort, the time, the faith that I put into it? Maybe that was some of what was going on with John the Baptist in that moment. We don't know, but he had his questions. And as Jesus did so eloquently... Jesus, throughout his earthly ministry, was really good at answering questions without exactly answering questions. Sometimes Jesus would answer a question by asking a question of his own. For example, when one came to him and asked him what the greatest commandment was, and Jesus says, well, what do you read about? How do you interpret the things of God's law? We often learn in school, don't answer a question with a question. But Jesus did that. And here, Jesus didn't come out and say, you bet your bottom dollar, absolutely, I am the one. Why are you asking this ridiculous question? Why are you having doubts and fears at this point? Jesus says, go back and tell John. Tell him what you hear and what you see. And the references that are made there in verse 5 are to multiple passages within the book of Isaiah. You can read so many portions of Isaiah where it speaks of that one who is coming in the name of the Lord, how he will come as an instrument of peace, an instrument of healing, a spokesperson for God. And when we look at Matthew, what we've discussed so far in Matthew is that Jesus' ministry very much mimicked the expectations that we find in the book of Isaiah. And as we've looked at before, Matthew's gospel was very much about interpretation of the Old Testament and finding fulfillment of God's word in and through the life and the ministry of Jesus. So Jesus says in so many words, take a look at what's unfolding around you. You see that people are being healed. You see that lives are being transformed. You hear that good news is being preached to people like never before. You see these things, you hear these things, now you make a decision. It's not exactly the kind of answer that we would want for Jesus. We like Jesus to be cut and dry, don't beat us around the bush, shoot us straight, Jesus. But here Jesus said, look, let the evidence speak. Let the evidence say yea or nay as to whether I am the one truly sent by God. Whether God is really at work in this movement, this time in history, or whether that's at some point down the road in the future. And I love those words that Jesus concludes that section with. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense, no one who stumbles as a result of him. Part of what Jesus was getting at there in that simple phrase of verse 6 is the fact that how we respond to Jesus has implications, not only for this life in the present, but obviously it has implications for eternal matters as well. 
when you look at other portions of the New Testament, this image of a stumbling block does come up in various teachings of the epistles. And there the image is that of people stumbling over Jesus because they try to follow the way of the law instead of the way of Jesus and the cross. And the reason that could be a stumbling block was because of the fact that people were so set in their ways as to how one obtained righteousness with God. The fact that works, works specifically related to the law, should have been instrumental in proving one's righteousness, as if we can earn our way into good favor with God. And so people essentially stumbled over the fact that, no, that was not the necessity. That was not God's full expectation. God sent His Son as a fulfillment of the law to be the one we trust in, and because of our trust in Him, we have life, not life with Christ plus the law. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me, who truly sees who I am, who understands what I'm doing, who witnesses the reality of God through my ministry. Moving into verse 7, this next section, Jesus, Jesus doesn't dismiss John the Baptist. One thing that's so important, he didn't blow off the question when John the Baptist sent his followers to go to Jesus. And here, to follow up what he had just said, to go back and report to John the Baptist, Jesus in no way degraded, demoralized John the Baptist. Oh, what a fool. How, how could he have such doubts and questions? That was just a, a total waste of my time. That's ridiculous. No, when the delegation from John the Baptist leaves, verse 7 picks up and says, As they went away... Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed that was shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? Someone who was dressed in soft robes or fine linens? Look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. That prophetic quote there is from the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1 to be exact, where Jesus points to John the Baptist as indeed being the one who would prepare the way for Jesus. John has come onto the scene. He has fulfilled his role, his responsibility within the story of Christ. And the words that Jesus uses of John the Baptist, the fact that he was not just some royal, special, uppity kind of person. He was not someone who was one of the well-favored within society, but the fact that he fit that prophetic mold. He, he lived and he taught in the tradition of those who went before him, his, his garments, his diet, his lifestyle out in the wilderness. It seemed to be, it seemed to be, Something that is utterly absurd. In fact, we're going to look at that in the next few verses because some thought, oh, John the Baptist must be a lunatic because of how he's living out there in the wilderness. 
He needs to, to get things right. He's demon-possessed. But no, John, John is a part of God's work, part of God's plan and purposes. In verse 11, it says, Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has risen greater than John the Baptist, yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. As great a spokesperson as John the Baptist was on behalf of God's kingdom, as faithful as he was in preparing the way, getting the road in order for the arrival of Christ's ministry, as important as that was, Jesus says that is going to be least. And this is where one of those great points of tension happens within the Gospels. You see, in our lives, we would think that the person who has the best, the most, the smartest, the this, the that, would be the person who gets it right, the person who's a shoe-in, if you will, to God's kingdom. But God's kingdom and the teachings of Scripture is a thing of reversals. Whereas Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, God took the weak things, the feeble things, the, the ridiculous things of humanity and held those up, glamorized those, but he took things that were considered to be of great value and strength and he brought those down. To be a part of the kingdom of God is a reversal of fortunes where the least is greatest and the greatest becomes the least. And here's one of those first illusions that Jesus has to that reversal that happens within the kingdom. Yes, you think that John the Baptist was very important. Yes, he fulfilled quite well the prophetic role. But I tell you, even the least, the smallest, the weakest in God's kingdom is going to be greater than John the Baptist. It should be a way of really blowing our minds or blowing our hearts open because we, we tend to get things the exact opposite where we treasure people for what they bring to the equation. We value people for what they are able to offer to our congregations, whereas God is capable of seeing all people, regardless if you're a millionaire, regardless if you've got multiple doctorate degrees, or whether you're the simplest, most uneducated, most humble person in the community. The values of God's kingdom are so very different. The priorities of God's kingdom are so drastically different different than anything we can really imagine. Jesus builds upon that in verse 12 and says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent try to take it by force. For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John came, and if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. That's important to this gospel. Not just having ears, not just having the ability to hear, to eavesdrop, to pick up on tidbits of information, but blessed is the one who hears these things and takes them to heart, takes them to mind, allows these things to become centralized in who he or she is. 
Now, when you look at those verses, a couple of things stand out. One, these words of violence, the fact that violence was already being dished out against God's kingdom. And we may wonder how in the world, because persecution under the Roman Empire really wasn't until late first century. Maybe that's what Jesus was getting at. Because certainly when Matthew was penning this gospel, when he was sharing this report of Jesus to his audience, they would have understood fully what persecution was all about, what it meant to face opposition at the hands of the Roman authorities. But maybe Jesus was just pointing out what was already happening in that moment, the fact that there were those opposed to the message and the ministry of John the Baptist, and so it's already beginning to unfold the fact that there are those who will receive the kingdom of God versus those who will reject the kingdom of God. When you look at those verses, what... Jesus seems to really be drawing the attention to is what was happening during the time of Herod Antipas. Herod was not the best leader. He wasn't the most wicked leader either, but he had a way of shifting his loyalties. He had a way of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours type language that we would use in our culture today. And so he wasn't really strong, and it seems to be that Jesus' words here were an attack against Herod and what John the Baptist was experiencing through Herod. Because if there was anybody who was out there blowing like a reed in the wind, it was Herod Antipas. In fact, on the coinage that was commissioned by Herod Antipas, he actually had a reed that was a part of the symbolism that was etched there on the coin. And so that came to be connected with the kingship and the leadership, if you will, of Herod Antipas. So maybe Jesus was was striking a low blow at what Herod had done to John the Baptist because he didn't want to hear what John the Baptist had to say. He didn't receive the rebuke that John had against Herod Antipas. And because of that, he had to imprison him. Jesus at 16 goes beyond that as he begins to look at this tension, if you will, that exists between those who will receive versus those who will reject God's kingdom. To what will I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to one another, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We wailed and yet you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they said he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. It's puzzling what Jesus says there, but to give you kind of a a helpful explanation of what Jesus says, what am I going to compare the people of this day and time to? In a nutshell, Jesus says people are divisive, people can never be satisfied, people can be contrary. The image that's used there is that of children who are playing. 
And we don't think of playing these kind of games, well, not necessarily quite the same way in our world today. We might think of children when they're small playing marriage. Little boy, little girl, plan a wedding, we're going to pretend to get married under the oak tree, so on and so forth. We know that it's pretend, we know it's play, and I know there's times that my six-year-old Kelsey does that, where she'll dress the part of a bride, or she'll get out her dolls and want to play wedding. Well, for some, they wanted to play the game of wedding, the game of marriage. Okay, let's, let's play it. Well, when the time came to play the game, no, we don't want to play that game. The other image that Jesus uses here is that of playing funeral. Now, we don't, in our culture today, tend to think about playing funeral. We may play cops and robbers. We may play a lot of things. But how many times do we think of, oh, let's go out and play funeral this afternoon? Very rarely, but it was not uncommon in that culture in that day and time. So you've got those that now, okay, let's go play funeral. All right, we agree to play funeral. Well, we don't want to play that now. You can see how contrary these two groups of children are being. When we agree to play this, no, you want to do this. All right, we change the rules, we'll do this. No, we decided we don't want that, we want the opposite. And that was the response that was being issued to both John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist was living out on the fringes of society. He was living in the wilderness. He was eating locust and wild honey. He was dressed in camel's hair. He was not probably the most physically attractive individual. And they thought, hey, somebody needs to give that guy some food. He's lost his mind. He is nuts. Call somebody. Report John the Baptist. But then you have Jesus who, well, he's not out fasting and he's not dressed in camel's hair. He's living in the cities and he's hanging out with the people. He's eating and drinking like a normal individual. Well, he's a glutton. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's, no, we can't have that. Well, which way did the religious leaders want it? Heaven forbid John the Baptist live as though he was living, but then you've got Jesus, and Jesus is doing the exact opposite of John the Baptist, but you don't want it that way either. I fear that that mentality is not limited to 2,000 years ago. I think we see that in our world today. We see that a lot in politics. We see that even in churches. We see that within families. There are going to be people who receive Christ with open arms, but then there are going to be those who, when given the free gift of Christ, no, I want something else. That's not good enough. I want something better. Jesus calls us to be very careful. In fact, that last phrase used there, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Even though there were people who were standing in strong opposition to John the Baptist and to Jesus, the idea behind that phrase is the fact that, that the actions will speak. The proof will be in the pudding. 
God will vindicate the work of John the Baptist, but even more so the work that Christ is going to do to the point that he will die and he will receive the ultimate vindication, resurrection from the grave. In so many words, Jesus says, we'll just kind of see how this unfolds, how things pan out. You might be surprised at what you find out in your rejection of God's kingdom. Verse 20 and following builds upon that theme of rejecting Christ and rejecting God's kingdom. It says there in verse 20, Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done because they did not repent. If you look there on the map that's on page 2 of your handout for chapter 11, you'll see the cities that Jesus drew attention to in that moment. Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazim. All located along the, the northern shoreline of the Sea of Galilee, all in close proximity to where Jesus did the majority of his earthly ministry. And here's something I would like for us to think about. How many times have we said, or maybe we've heard other people utter the words, well, you know, if I had lived during the time of Jesus, things would have been a lot easier. If I could have just walked where Jesus walked and saw him and heard him day by day, I believe this whole Christian thing would be a lot simpler. Really? I mean, we look at the men and the women who walked and heard and experienced Jesus in the flesh, but yet they still rejected. Would we really be all that different than Jesus' first audience? Jesus said they had the opportunity. They had experienced these deeds. They saw him do things that were powerful and miraculous, but yet it did not change the way they were living. So how do we think that if we could go back in time or if we could bring Jesus in the flesh right here, right now, we would really be any that much different from those Jesus was speaking of in those three cities? You see, simply seeing miracles and hearing powerful teaching is no guarantee of a relationship with God through Christ. We can see and be wowed and amazed beyond anything we can comprehend, but wowing and amazing is not the fullness of faith. Jesus builds in verse 21 saying, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the deeds of power done in you would have been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you, Capernaum, Capernaum, remember, being the base of operations for Jesus' ministry, Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you on that day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. A couple of chapters ago, we heard that exact same language about it being better 
for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and I spoke briefly about how those stories turned out back in the book of Genesis. We know the tragedy. We know the horrific end, the demise of those cities, the fact that they were no more. But yet for those who have seen and had ample opportunity to experience Jesus' ministry in the flesh, those individuals are without excuse. Jesus says, if I had been alive long ago during the time of Sodom and Gomorrah doing my ministry, they would have received me better than you are, and you're some of my hometown folks. That's a harsh word, don't you think? It's a harsh word because, well, we tend to think, well, we're close to Jesus, we know Jesus, we like Jesus, maybe Jesus will just sort of let us slide and take things easy on us. But the reality is, all of us have been given ample time and opportunity to make a decision for or against Christ. And the language that's used there is that of repentance in the first part of that passage. The fact that we need a complete roundabout. We need a total change. We need a 180 degree difference in our living. But at the same time, it also talks about the whole sackcloth and ashes, the fact that true remorse, genuine forgiveness was sought by the people of God. That's an image that's used in the Old Testament, an image that we talked about briefly in our discussion of the Sermon on the Mount, how sackcloth and ashes could be symbolic of sorrow, of bitter brokenness, being cut to the core and desiring to prove to God that that individual, that he or she really wanted to change. That's the kind of change that God longs for in our world today and not just, brothers and sisters, for the world out there. I know we see a lot of things in the news that are discouraging and frustrating I know we cast our judgment calls, we throw our stones at a lot of causes and conditions that we don't like, that we do not approve of, and we think, well, they're going to have to give an answer, they're going to have to be accountable to God, I don't want to be in their shoes, but we also need to look back at us, we need to give ourselves a close examination in the mirror. Because not only is it the wicked out there, but we as Christ followers also have our accountability. We all have our responsibility to stand before God one day and to say what we did or didn't do. And there's a lot of stuff in our own lives as Christians that needs confessing and not just saying, I'm sorry God, but needs genuine repentance a change of life. Literally, it means a, a change of heart, a change of mind. At verse 25, Jesus enters into what's almost a moment of prayer with his Father. It doesn't say that it was prayer, but it does say that Jesus said, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your pleasure or your glorious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. We have to be open. 
We have to be receptive to the things of God's kingdom. And Jesus points out in the closing portion of this text that not everybody is going to be as open. In fact, it's going to be some of the most unlikely people in this life who will be receptive to the kingdom of God while there's some of the people who feel entitled that are going to be left out. Revelation is a key word in Scripture. And when we think about revelation, it's understood in theological terms in a couple of different ways. One is natural revelation. The fact that we look out at the created order around us and we see the beauty and the splendor of everything that has been made and we know that there is a designer, we know that there is a divine power behind everything that we see in creation. So creation naturally calls out to us. It's part of what the psalmist wrote about, especially in Psalm number 8. But then there's the other form of revelation, what's called special revelation. Not just that the creation around us reveals the existence of a God, but the fact that we experience God in a unique way in the presence of His Son, Jesus Christ. Special revelation, being God in human flesh. And there are a lot of times in Scripture, and maybe even times in our lives today, where we wonder, what is God like? What does God look like? How does God look at things? How does God behave? How does God respond? Well, part of that answer is found here in Jesus' words when he talks about himself in relation to the Father. That it's through the Father that you see the Son. It's through the Son that you encounter the Father. And again, it's a matter of revelation according to verse 27. We can't just go out in the world and say, well, I'm just going to think up a God today. I'm going to think up a relationship with Jesus. I'm going to think about things like the Bible and theological terms and all of these things related to the, the teachings of God's kingdom. We can think up a lot of things. We can become really what one professor told me years ago, we can become smarter sinners we can have the information, we can have the basic knowledge, but still be lost on the inside. Revelation is something that we have to be willing and ready to receive. How many times do we say, God, not just God, do this for me or do that for me, but God, let me see you. Let me encounter you. I can't help but think about the beautiful story from that of Moses. When Moses was leading God's people, and there's that beautiful verse that says, Lord, show me your glory. Moses wanted to see just a tiny glimpse of God. And the scriptures teach us that God hid Moses in the cleft of a rock and he came behind the literal wording that's there. He, he showed his backside. He showed just a teeny tiny glimpse because there was no way that Moses could encounter the fullness of God and lived in that moment. When was the last time we said, God, let me see you for who you really are? God, show me your glory. God, show me let me see you in action. And when we look at the teaching and the life of Jesus, we see this is who God is. Yes, God is holy and creator, but at the same time, He's loving and merciful. He's so much bigger than anything our minds and hearts can fathom, but yet at the same time, this God is 
personal and personable. The closing verses of this chapter are words that are very familiar to us, and they give us tremendous hope and comfort, especially when we're going through times of difficulty, when we're weighed down with the burdens of life. Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That may seem like a totally random, out-of-the-ordinary way to close the chapter. It may seem very out-of-kilter with the way Jesus has taught things in other portions of chapter 11. But I think what Jesus really gets at there is the heart of who He truly was and is and why He came into the world. There were a lot of people who were bent on trying to just follow the law, try to be good enough, do as best you can, get by, if you will, in doing the Old Testament law. But in reality, that was an impossibility because nobody could hold everything to the very jot and tittle. Nobody could really live the law to its fullest degree. God knew that. The law had been important in the Old Covenant, But rather than serving as a solution to sin, it contributed to the problem all the more. And so the answer to the problem was in the sending of Jesus. And even though this life in Christ can be difficult... What Jesus shows us here is that when we draw alongside of Christ, when we cast our lot with Him, when we decide that we want Him to be Lord and leader of our lives, that it is so much better, it is so much easier than when we try to figure it out on our own that when we try to memorize the law and do this just right and this just right and offer the sacrifices and don't do this and don't do that, we can have it that way or as Christ shows here, we can have it by following Christ's way. Yes, life will still have its issues. It will still have its struggles that really push us and squeeze our faith at times. But Jesus says, my yoke, what I have to offer is so much easier, so much better than anything you can try to do through the law. And that was the big issue that Jesus was taking with the religious leaders. In fact, the better part of chapter 12 that we'll move into next week is going to talk about growing opposition between Jesus and the Pharisees. Jesus and the Pharisees, we've already seen a little bit of a bump up already, but things begin to get a little bit hotter, so to speak, as we move into chapter 12. And this is where Jesus and the Pharisees are going to kind of part ways here. Yes, they're good, devout Jews, but the Pharisees were basically holding to the letter of the law, and they thought, well, as long as you're doing the law and this, that, and the other, then you're good enough for God. But now Christ is fulfilling the law, but he's kind of doing it in a very different, unexpected way. And so this closing passage of chapter 11 is going to set the stage for some of the the tensions that are going to begin to surface between the Pharisees and Jesus as we join together next Wednesday.
My sisters and brothers, thank you for being with us this afternoon. It's always a blessing to share with you a few moments from God's holy word. I hope that you're learning. I hope that you're growing. I know that I'm blessed in my time of reading and studying, and I just hope that you're able to take a little bit of this time and share that in your faith and apply that and grow that as you seek to learn more about God and God's holy word. Would you bow with me for a closing word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the honesty of Scripture. Because, Lord, when we look at these texts, we find that there are places in our lives where we have questions and concerns. There are times when we wonder, is this really worth committing our lives to? Is this way of Christ really worth following? Lord, there's times when we encounter people who are the negative Nancys and the negative naysayers in our world who are opposed to the message that we try to share through Christ. We, we say one thing and then they want the opposite. There are those who are receptive to us and those who will shut the door in our face. These passages are not easy scripture to read and study, but they do remind us of the reality of our times and the pressure that we may experience because we choose to follow Christ. Lord, I know that my sisters and brothers have many needs that are close to their hearts. I ask that you would be with them, that you would lighten that load, that you would help ease that burden they're encountering, whatever it may be, and that you would place your gentle and much lighter yoke upon them. If they've been trying to do this Christian faith by themselves, help them to lean upon your strength, realizing that as we lean upon you, you make all things new and all things possible. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and together as God's people we said, Amen. See you next week. Have a blessed week.